Well, good morning. Um, my name is Marian Tupi, and I'm the editor of humanprogress.org. Uh, today's policy forum concerns the potential costs and benefits of genetically modified organisms. For thousands of years, farmers used selective breeding to produce more plentiful harvests and increase the usefulness of domesticated animals. In recent decades, advances in knowledge and technology have allowed us dramatically to speed up this age-old process through transgenesis and mutagenesis and gene silencing and gene editing. The arrival of CRISPR-Cas9 technology promises to make genetic, genetic modification cheaper, faster, and easier in the future. Should we be grateful or should we be worried? To help us understand the pros and cons of genetically modified organisms, I'm very pleased to welcome our distinguished speakers. Before introducing them, allow me to say a few words about today's format. Dr. Fraley will start and speak for 20 minutes. He will be followed by Professor Kuzma, who will also speak for 20 minutes. Afterwards, each speaker will be given five minutes to respond to anything the other speaker has said. Uh, then uh, we will open it um, to Q&A, and following that, uh, our speakers will have five minutes each for concluding remarks. For those of you who use Twitter um, or watch us on, um, um, on your uh, computers, um, please follow us and contribute to the conversation using a hashtag, KetoTalksGMOs. And with that, let me welcome our first speaker. Dr. Fraley is Executive Vice President and uh, Chief Technology Officer at Monsanto Company. He's been with Monsanto for 30 years and currently oversees the company's global technology divi division, which includes research, uh, research discoveries and continuous innovation in plant breeding, plant biotechnology, uh, egg biologicals, egg microbials, uh, precision agriculture and crop protection. He's the author of uh, more than 100 publications and patent applications relating to technical advances in agricultural sciences. He's recognized as the father of agricultural biology, biotechnology, and has been involved in research on agricultural biotech since the 1980s. Uh, he's the World Food Prize Laureate, uh, Prize Laureate uh, from 2013, a National Medal of Technology recipient from President Clinton in 1998, uh, the National Academy of Sciences Award for Industrial Application in Science uh, for 2008, and he holds a PhD in Microbiology and Biochemistry and Bachelor of Science, both from uh, the University of Illinois. Please help me welcome Dr. Robert Fraley. So, good morning, everybody. Good to see all you here, and I'm glad you uh, you braved those storm warnings to uh, to join us. Uh, this is going to be a, a great discussion, and I, I view it more as a discussion than a debate. And I think it's a really uh, really important topic because the uh, the role of biotechnology is central to both our uh, our healthcare and uh, and agriculture and food production. You know, I would describe this to you up front as a very uh, very important tool. Uh, it helps farmers. Uh, grow crops, increase their yields, and that's good for the consumer because that uh, enables us to produce food uh, more effectively and uh, in a more environmentally friendly uh, weather. I'll make the point, and you'll hear a lot about the discussion, this is a highly regulated technology, both here in the U.S. and around the world. Um, 
We're celebrating actually uh, this year the 20th anniversary of GMOs. They were first launched in 1996, and we'll talk a lot about the uh, the benefits of the products and uh, and their safety. And I'll tell you. Quite honestly, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of different views and myths out there, and I'm sure we'll have a, a chance to discuss those as well. But I'll just leave you in the intro that, you know, this is a key technology that, uh, that has changed uh, healthcare, it's changing agriculture and farming, and it's really key. Now, as a, as a little bit of a personal background, uh, that's me. I grew up on a farm on uh, my uh, dad's tractor. Uh, I've been in agriculture all my life. Uh, I had the uh, privilege of, uh, of uh, early on in my science career to, uh, to spend time at the University of California in San Francisco when the GMO technology was first being developed. The first gene cloning experiment was done by Herb Boyer um, in UCSF uh, back in the early 1970s. So this technology has been around for a long time. My passion was to apply it to agriculture. I joined Monsanto in 1981, started their, uh, their biotech program, and uh, you, know, you can see me with the mustache uh, back when I was in the lab uh, doing the work. By 1982, we had developed the methods for actually putting the genes in plants in a very precise way that enabled the crop improvements. And then we were involved uh, in the field testing of the technology. It took us about 15 years to perfect the technology, to go through the regulatory process, and we launched the first products in, uh, in 1997, or 1996. And so it's been key, and it's been exciting, and I've had the opportunity to, to meet a lot of fascinating folks, but I would just point right in the center. Uh, I had a very special relationship with an individual named Norman Borlaug. Uh, I knew Norman the last 25 years of his life. As you know, Norman um, was the... Uh, recipient of the Nobel Prize for the work he did on feeding the world and, and bringing new technologies into India and Pakistan that, that were pivotal. And uh, in many ways, I think the challenges that we go through with any new technology are reflective of a lot of the challenges that, that Norm uh, identified and, uh, and dealt with. Let's lay out the case really quickly. And you've all seen numbers and demographics like this. And this is a really important time for this discussion. World population today is 7.3 billion. 2050, it'll be 10 billion. If you say that really fast, it seems like a long way away. That's 34 years. And it's key that, uh, that we understand what that means. As important as the fact that the world will get more crowded is we will see a tremendous increase in world wealth. The success across Asia and Africa means another two or three billion people will join the middle class and they'll want to eat better and have better diets. If you add the combination of more folks and, and more wealth, we need to double the food supply between now and 2050. And that means we have to produce more food in the next few years than we have in the entire history of the world. So this is a huge challenge. And to do it, we're going to need new technologies and new tools. We simply can't farm the same way in 2050 we do today, and we need, uh, we need these enhancements. Because we know also that we're going to have to farm using less water, and we're going to have to, uh, we're going to, have to deal with some of the effects that we see with changing climates. And so it's a huge challenge. But I want you to know that not only are the advances in biology that we're going to talk about today incredibly important, but we're now seeing you know, the data science tools and the digitization of the farms give us brand new tools to farm better and more efficiently around the world. I think a good place to start when we frame the discussion around the safety of GMOs is, is realization that man has been modifying crops from the very beginning of time. In fact, this chart shows you where all crops started. 
And what you see is there's very few crops in the United States that actually started in the United States. That means everything we grow today came from somewhere else. Soybeans came from China. Lettuce came from, uh, from Asia. Uh, corn came from Mexico. And they were all genetically modified to fit here in the US to produce the crops we have today. And it's really a pretty good thing, because if you see on the picture here, you know, the ancestor of corn did not look like a very big corn plant, or I'm not sure you would want to eat that ancestral banana. So these improvements have given us better foods, better nutrition, and better, uh, better health. And the point is, you know, from the early days of hunter-gatherers to today's modern plant breeder, what we've been doing is, is genetically modifying crops, using techniques like mutagenesis, like cell fusion, techniques that worked, but but weren't very precise. And now we have tools like using the GMO tools, using the gene editing tools that are specific to the gene and literally down to the individual nucleotide in the gene. And so there are uh, they're, they're ways that allow us to, to breed and improve crops uh, more, uh, more specifically. And, uh, and that's key. Now, when we talk about GMOs, we're going to spend most of the time today talking about the agricultural applications. But the point I, I want to make, and it's so key, GMOs are being used across the healthcare industry, across the crop and food industry, and across so many of our, uh, our, 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 the products that we use every day in our lives. The first GMO product, do you know what it was? Human insulin. It was approved in 1982. Prior to that, if you were a diabetic, the insulin that you used came from the pancreas of a cow or a pig. And it had problems with, with contamination and allergenicity. Once scientists were able to clone the human gene and produce modern humulin that's produced in a laboratory, it changed how medical treatments for insulin were delivered. And today, Half of the new drugs that are developed in this country are based on GMOs. Uh, you know, Embryl, if you have arthritis, is a GMO product. Herceptin is a great cancer therapy that's used. And so the point is, GMOs and biotechnology have changed medicine. Uh, they've had a huge impact in food. Do you know what the first food product of GMOs was? Take a guess. Cheese. The enzyme that we use to make cheese is chymosin. That's the enzyme that cleaves the, the milk protein and turns it into, uh, into solids. Chymosin used to be extracted from the stomachs of animals. Today, that gene is cloned, it's made in the laboratory, and almost all the cheeses that we eat around the world are, are GMOs and produced with that product. And the vitamins that we use today are produced in the laboratory, you know, sterilely under great conditions and food ingredients. And then some of my, my favorite ones, and these may not be the, uh, the most profound, but are, uh, are detergents. The reason we use small amounts of detergents today and we can wash our clothes in cold water is because they contain GMO enzymes, proteases, lipases that literally lift the dirt off of our clothes. And you know, one of my favorites in, in my office, you see these fish? These are glowfish. You can go to Petco or any of your, uh, your pet stores and literally buy GMO fish that now contain the fluorescent protein engineered into them from algae or from coral that makes them glow up in different colors. And of course, we've got you know, the impact on agriculture, which has been you know, by far, I think, the, one of the most impactful and also the most controversial. 
Today, since 1996, there's been 100 GMO products approved around the world. They are now grown in over 30 countries on about a quarter of the world's uh, farmland. And it's been one of the fastest adopted uh, you know, technologies in the history of agriculture. And we think about it from a farmer perspective, farmers all around the world are using this technology. And it surprises people to know that this technology has as, had as much benefit to a large farmer in the US or Brazil as it has to farmers in India and Africa. And in many ways, the small farmer, the smallholder farmer gets even more advantage because they don't often have the access to the products to control insects and weeds that a, a large farmer in the US would. And over 90% of the farmers in developing countries represent the, the bulk of the farmers using the, uh, the technology. Here in the US, about 90% of our corn, our soybean, our cotton, our canola crops use the GMO technology. And I often get asked, why do farmers use this technology? The answer is real simple, because it works and it provides them benefits. There's been a recent study done by two German economists that reviewed all of the data from all of the sources. It was a huge meta-analysis. And basically, they concluded, and as you know, the, 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 German, the Germans haven't been the most friendly to, to GMO technology. But these economists concluded that, uh, that GMO crops have increased yields by about 20%. They've reduced pesticide use by over 30% and they've increased uh, farmer profitability. And that's really one of the reasons that, uh, that we've seen such, uh, such dramatic adoption. The last point I want to make is, you know, on the science side, is these benefits ha have really you know, addressed you know, helping farmers produce more food, safer food, and, and better food. But uh, I think the, the statistic that I am most proud of is the fact that this technology has had a stellar safety record. And safety actually starts at the beginning of the discovery process. We know the sequence of that gene specifically. We can characterize and understand it. And every step in that development process is geared towards safety. From the time we discover a gene to the time we commercialize a product takes about 13 years. Uh, and we spend about $150 million. Here in the US, the GMO crops are regulated by all three government agencies, EPA, USDA, and FDA. You know, back when the technology was first being developed in the 80s, there was a prevalent view that this technology was so safe there should be no regulation. And then there was another view that said, this technology was so scary, we need to create some super new agency to do that. I think the compromise that was developed in the Reagan administration to create the coordinated framework, where they draw upon the expertise of the USDA in agriculture, the expertise of the FDA in food and feed safety, the expertise of the EPA in the environment, has actually worked out remarkably well. In many ways, it's been the gold standard of the industry. Now, you're going to hear that that process can be improved, and I would agree. Frankly, I think after 20 years, it can be streamlined and made better and more efficient. But the key is, it is very science-based, and it's the model for the rest of the world. And the other thing you need to understand is that because the US, because Brazil is the breadbasket for the world, and our grains are shipped all around the world, this technology is also reviewed by 70 other countries. There are ministries of health, there are ministries of the environment, and, uh, and uh, the ministries of agriculture. This is by far. These seeds, these GMO food products are the most thoroughly studied food on the planet, and 
because of that, these are the safest products you know, that are in the market. In 20 years that these products have been used, since 1996, there's not been a single food or feed safety issue ever associated with the technology. It has a pristine track record, and that reflects not only you know, the inherent safety of the processes used, but the fact that there's been excellent regulatory review and, uh, and oversight. Now, the last point I would make, and, and one of the things you will hear often as criticism of GMOs, and, and it, it's interesting, is that no matter that we've had the great regulatory, we've had the great track record, you know, this is inherently not safe because, you know, we're moving genes between species, and, and it always has to be uh, questions. And, and this is kind of interesting because in the last few years from a science perspective, as we've studied now the genomes of all the crops and all the plants and animals, and we understand really at a natural deep level the gene composition, what we've basically learned in the last few years, and this is new, that nature herself turns out to be a very good genetic engineer. So if you just take an example, ferns. How many of you have a Boston fern? You've seen them. The Boston fern gets its genes for light sensing from a moss. The genes have moved from moss into the, uh, into the ferns. The yew tree down here, you've all seen yews. Yews became really famous a few years ago because they were the source of Taxol, an important drug. The Taxol biochemical pathway in the yew plant came from a fungal organism that moved its genes into the yew tree. My, one of my favorite examples are sweet potatoes. How many of you eat sweet potatoes? My wife loves them. It turned out just last year that scientists who sequenced the, uh, the sweet potato genome realized that all sweet potatoes contain genes from bacteria that were actually introduced in the sweet potato using the same agrobacterium that we use to create GMO soybeans and corn. And here's the last kicker. You, the human genome has been sequenced many times, our genes. And if you take a look at that, there was just a paper published three months ago. On average, humans contain hundreds of genes from other species. So here's the whole point. What we thought 20 years ago was, was exciting, scary, new science has turned out to be basically horizontal gene transfer. Uh, and it turns out that nature is a very good genetic engineer, and frankly, that genes are constantly moving as part of the evolutionary process and part of the improvement process. Now, I've talked a lot about the, uh, the science, and, and it's really important, but I need to change gears here and just make the point that, uh, that as important as science is, science, uh, science isn't enough. You know, it has to be strong, it has to be great science, but, uh, but that's not sufficient. We have to be able to communicate science to the public better than we are today. You've probably seen this, uh, this National uh, Geographic uh, headline. I, uh, I think it's a great, uh, it's a great article, uh, the book. I don't disagree agree with it, but I don't like the premise. It says there's a war on science, and the, and the words you can't see here in, in the captions are, you know, climate change doesn't exist, evolution never happened, the moon landing was fake, vaccinations can lead to autism, and genetically modified food is evil. I don't think it's a war on science. I think it reflects the fact that the gap in science between what's possible to do and achieve and what the public 
understands and is comfortable with, we haven't addressed that gap very well in this country. And I think, frankly, it starts with more STEM education in our schools, but, but also, very importantly, we've done a lousy job of communicating about science and the importance of, of, of innovation and what these technologies can do. And, uh, and that's been the key. In fact, the Pew study you may have all seen that was published that compared the view of the public to the view of the scientists on key issues only about 37% of the public feels that GMOs are safe, and nearly 90% of the scientists feel the technology is safe. And it just points out that we need to do a much better job on, uh, on communication. And, and I think that's key. And the point I would make here is engaging with society on science is essential. I would tell you that the biggest mistake that my company made several years ago, once we had developed the technology and we had launched these products, we spent our time communicating with the, the, the farmers who were using the products, and we did not spend the time we needed directly with consumers. And that, that was a big mistake, and I wish we could have reversed it. But several years ago, we realized that was a mistake. As a company, we're engaging heavily on you know, building the trust that we need with consumers, which basically means engaging you know, in the dialogue, having the, uh, the conversation, uh, being transparent, you know, in our business operations. One of the things we do now is every one of our scientific papers is published, and you can see these. And on your chairs, you should have um, my business card and a thumb drive. I hope you follow me on, uh, on Twitter. But on that thumb drive, I've got access to a lot of the information, a lot of the data, you know, that I've talked about so quickly here. This communication is key. And part of it is communicating to people in the way they want to get the information. And that means social media. That means, you know, videos and, and communicating directly uh, to the public. And probably I would say one of the, the, the great you know, conversations going on right now around transparency and, and, uh, and communication, you know, relies around the, the topic of food labeling. And there's a lot of confusion on, on food labeling. Should foods be labeled with GMO? What should the label be? Should it be done city by city, state by state? You know, our, our view surprises a lot of people. We, we are very supportive of voluntary labeling. And, uh, you know, we want the labeling to be, uh, to be truthful so it's not confusing to the consumer. And I think voluntary labels are key. In fact, today, if you buy a food that's been organic and labeled by the USDA, it's GMO-free. Or, you know, there's private-founded, you know, companies that are, are labeling the, the non-GMO project. There's literally thousands of choices, and we think that's a, a very good thing. We don't think, you know, city by city or state by state's the right way. You know, if we end up with a patchwork of, of 50 different state regulations in this country, it will uh, it'll be very hard on the food industry. It would be, I think, devastating to farmers to try to comply with all that, uh, that regulation. And really, I think it would confuse a lot of, uh, a lot of consumers. If we're going to label these products in that sense, they need to be labeled at the national level so that everybody understands the, uh, the rules across the board. Personally, what I like the best is the smart label. And, and right now, that's being actively pursued by the, uh, by the USDA and by the, the grocery manufacturers because you can put so much information in that QR code. You can give consumers information on where the crop was produced, how it was processed, and, uh, and uh, how it was packaged, frankly. So that's, uh, that's real key. So I'm going to conclude and just make a couple of points. First of all, you know, as I look at, uh, at the last slide here, here's the facts. 
our population is going to continue to grow. That's the blue line. It flattens off at about 10 billion people by 2050. In order to achieve food security, we need to double food production. That's the red line. The good news is we have the technology, the capabilities, and the tools uh, to do that. In fact, I can tell you, I believe we can increase crop yields so dramatically that we can not only achieve food security, but that green land represents all the land we farm around the world to produce our food. We can become so proficient that we can take land out of production and restore it to, uh, to better environmental uses. So that's... Uh, what I want to leave you with, a technology that's been valuable, a technology that's been highly regulated, and I ask for your support. We know we need to have better and more open public dialogue. We need to know that we have the right capability in decision and, uh, and policy making. We want to make the right decisions for the right reasons so that these technologies and tools can continue to have benefit across agriculture and healthcare. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rob. Um, and the thumb drives are available outside, so please uh, take one with you on your way out. Our second speaker is uh, Professor Jennifer Kuzma, who is the Goodnight Glaxo Foundation Distinguished Professor in Social Sciences and Co-Director of the Genetic Engineering and Society Center at North Carolina State University. She has over 100 scholarly publications on emerging technologies and governance. Before re-entering the academia, uh, she was in Washington, D.C., working uh, as study director for National Academy of Sciences reports related to biotechnology and bioterrorism, and as a fellow at the United States Department of Agriculture, working on food safety risk analysis. She has held several leadership positions, including the Society for Risk Analysis Council, the FDA Blood um, Products Advisory Committee, and the United Nations Expert Group for Nanotechnologies in Food and Agriculture. In 2014, she received the Society for Risk Analysis Distinguished Lecture Award for recognition of outstanding contributions to the field of risk analysis. She's been called upon in national media for her expertise on genetic engineering, um, uh, on genetic engineering policy issues, including recently in uh, the Washington Post, the uh, New York Times, uh, Nature Magazine, and National Public Radio. Please help me welcome Jennifer Kuzma. Great. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me, Marian. Um, and I think Rob and I have at least two things in common. Uh, we both agree that this is not a debate, but a, 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 a look into two different perspectives on genetic engineering and society. And the second thing is we both have glowfish in our office. Um, and I, and I, I've had, you know, the, uh, moderate luck with my glowfish over the last uh, three years. I've got one that's been living for two years, so... Um, but it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, the first thing I want to say is uh, I kind of view this, I, I put a question mark on the title of my slide, Genetic Engineering and Society Meet, question mark. Because the way I view the debates over the past 30 years is more of genetic engineering over here at a party and society over here, and they're both talking bad about each other behind their backs. And so the question is, is can we bring them together and have them meet um, for the benefit of, of both the technology and um, society in, um, in general? 
So, but the first thing I should say is that um, scope and disclaimers. My talk is going to focus more on the environmental release of genetically engineered organisms, not so much on the medicine or healthcare settings or industrial um, biotechnology, and cover multiple purposes. Um, but I'm going to focus more on the macro issues with genetic engineering in society. I'd be happy to engage in, in Q&A and with Rob on conversations about the micro risks and benefits, but I'd like to point out some macro issues that I don't think often get discussed in questions of biotechnology, agricultural biotechnology governance. And then, of course, the views are my own and not of NC States or the Genetic Engineering and Society Center at large. We are a collection of faculty and students with a lot of different perspectives, uh, ranging from technology developers to historians to anthropologists to philosophers, public affairs um, faculty, et cetera. And so I don't speak for everybody at the center. So Rob did a nice job of telling you about the first generation of genetically engineered organisms, which has been largely focused on commodity crops and herbicide-tolerant or uh, pest-resistant genes, namely Bt. And these crops have really taken off and so that they comprise more than 80% uh, and closer to 90 to 100% of soybeans, cotton, and corn in the United States. And they have had benefits for um, reducing pesticides, especially with Bt crops, and also for uh, conservation tillage practices for herbicide-tolerant um, crops. And they have uh, spread throughout the world in multiple countries and multiple um, types of farmers and have had benefits to smaller scale farmers as well. And we can talk more about those benefits. Um, the yield effects, I'm a, li a little less optimistic about the yield effects than Rob is. I've seen differed, differing data on um, yield gains with uh, transgenic crops, and, and so the numbers vary um, depending on pest pressure, depending on geographic location. But there have been some yield gains, especially uh, under conditions of pest pressure um, and Bt crops. Herbicide-tolerant crops is a little bit more mixed, but they certainly have increased the time available to farmers for um, being able to do other things and perhaps gain income in other ways. So that's, let's, we can come back to that in the Q&A, um, and, and I'm happy to do that. But I want to talk more about kind of the macro-level um, early science and risk debates and get back to this question of whether or not there's anything inherent in the genetic engineering process that leads to a greater risk of a category of products. Um, so in the early debates about GMOs and whether they should be regulated or not, they were compared to the baseline of, trans, of traditional plant breeding. And in the case of traditional plant breeding, you have a situation where many genes are transferred um, and, and many um, uh, genes can end up in, in the new plant variety that were not there before. But they're generally under the control of the original promoters or what we call kind of the regulatory elements that turn the genes on and off. Um, and they're generally in a more uh, native context in that regard. Whereas with transgenic technology, it can be more precise where you're adding fewer genes and now with gene editing, doing it in more targeted ways, but generally they're under different control elements uh, or control switches or these promoters. So in the early debate, it was about whether or not the process of genetic engineering bore more risk um, than traditional plant breeding. And the scientific consensus is in general, no, the process doesn't generally lead to greater or less risk than conventional breeding. However, there were 
some concerns about taking genes out of their natural ecological context and moving them into new environments and new contexts, um, and the control of those genes being upregulated or on all the time. So those are there's debates on both sides um, as to whether one is more or less risky or one is not, but generally it came down in the fact that it is really the product that bears the risk and not the process of genetic engineering. And so our regulatory system was developed with a product focus um, as to which particular regulatory agency it would fall under. And so in 1986, the coordinated framework for the regulation of biotechnology was developed, where authorities were split among th largely three federal agencies, the Department of Agriculture under the Plant Pest Act, uh, the Food and Drug Administration under the Federal Food and uh, Cosmetic Act, generally, and the Environmental Protection Agency under the Pesticide Act or the Toxic Substances Act. And again, the focus was on the product to split um, to split these different genetically engineered organisms into different categories for different agencies. But then, actually, the trigger for regulation often became the process of genetic engineering itself. And in some ways, uh, these laws were on the books for a long time and were not written specifically for the products of biotechnology, which caused some concern that they were in a sense twisted in some way and perhaps too general and not focused enough. For example, with genetically engineered animals today, we're calling them new animal drugs. Uh, with genetically engineered microbes, we're calling them toxic chemicals. And with uh, genetically engineered plants, a lot of them were called plant pests because early forms of genetic engineering use plant pest sequences from agrobacterium or from cauliflower mosaic viruses. And now we're seeing that the genetic engineering technology has evolved and is not using those sequences anymore, and therefore many genetically engineered crops are not regulated at all by the USDA. And if they're not containing a pesticidal protein, they're not regulated by the EPA, and the FDA process is a voluntary consultation process. So there is some concern that these laws were stretched in a way and that there are some gaps and redundancies in the coordinated framework. But the main premises were uh, new, no new categories of risk, no new laws uh, needed, and it's the product that should be the focus of risk assessment, not the process. So we've taken a look at the coordinated framework um, in multiple projects that I've had and looking at how well has it kept pace with the technology over time. So it was twisted a bit in the beginning to cover the products of biotechnology, and perhaps that was a wise decision as technology often moves much more quickly than policy does. And so in order to do a good job of covering the health and environmental safety issues, we needed to do something, um, or it could have taken decades to pass new biotechnology legislation. And so I wrote a book chapter on how well has this coordinated framework paced over time with changes in genetic engineering. And quite to my surprise, it's paced pretty well, actually. And it's done it through different kinds of policy tools, if you will, with the first policy tool being interagency policy making through this coordinated framework, which was more of a guidance than a law um, as to how we would use existing laws. The second through formal agency rules. Um, the third through guidance, and now I see that we're entering a fourth phase that I call a revolution, where the USDA has been able to back off of some of its authorities under the Plant Pest Act to cover genetically engineered crops. 
But the key here, and the main point I want to make, is each one of these phases was prompted by conflict, um, in that each the, the policy system responded to contention and controversy at each point, and generally lawsuits from NGOs. Furthermore, in looking at um, kind of the multi-criteria assessment of the system, in other words, how was the oversight system developed, what are its attributes, how do the attributes evolve over time, and what are the outcomes, we found in looking across a lot of different regulatory systems, and in particular GEOs was the case study I worked at, on where these, these criteria are not separable. So in other words, public confidence is affected by public input, data requirements, and incentives for regulation. The governance system is complex, and normative criteria, ethical-based criteria, empirical criteria, and institutional criteria are often intertwined. And I think that's an important lesson to learn. So the system was set up to be science-based, but the question is, is there such a thing as a purely science-based system? And I'm going to get to that in a little bit. Um, so I came to the conclusion through studying this for a while that, yes, it was able to pace over time because it had high flexibility in the way it was set up and using existing laws, and, and therefore you could change the interpretation of those laws over time. It had a relatively weak legal grounding because now we're seeing agencies being able to shift their positions on whether things are covered or not under the coordinated framework and a complex institutional structure. But more importantly, there is very little transparency in the process. A low-level informed consent among the public, few opportunities for public input. Um, really, the only window that the public has into policymaking or decision-making is in the Federal Register um, process for uh, decisions about uh, particular products or for new regulations and rules. Sometimes in public meetings, but they're usually held in DC, and they're really not a back-and-forth conversation. Furthermore, the agencies have very low capacity to deal with the health and environmental safety questions. They're underfunded. If you look at the budgets for FDA, EPA, and USDA, they're the, some of the most underfunded um, agencies out there in um, the US. And I believe that this, some of this has led to more controversy and delay and rejection and has really um, caused a lot of uncertainty for the developers of, of genetically engineered products. And I'm wondering if there couldn't be an opportunity for a better system. So again, contested decision-making contexts. And the system is based on sound science, but the risks and benefits of GMOs are highly contested. There is a lot of uncertainty, um, and there's no such thing as zero risk. Uh, you cannot prove safety. It's a negative. So with all these elements um, twisted together in the context of this conflicted um, policy system, uh, individual analyses are not trusted, and people can interpret uncertainty in different ways depending on their worldviews. Industry studies are not trusted, and studies showing harm are discredited in the literature. Um, there is no perfect study, and, and we've seen um, that studies that tend to show risk are the ones that are most vilified in the literature. But the most important thing is that there's no space for discussing harms outside of direct human and environmental risk and benefit. And this appeal to sound science has really marginalized discussions of values. 
Values are inherent in science, and I'll get into that in a, in a second. But the first question is, who gets to define what a risk is? Why are we so focused on sound science, which is really a code word for direct human and environmental health impacts? There's second order ecosystem and health um, implications. There's the distribution of the risks and benefits, justice issues that are also extremely important. There's harms to social structures and benefits. There's ethical affronts. There's psychological well-being, financial impacts, economic impacts, and cultural disruption. Perhaps the biggest one of these right now is what's going on with the organic industry and worries about cross-contamination. And our regulatory system doesn't really deal with that. Um, even though it is a risk, according to some definitions. And I, I study risk analysis. There's many conceptions of risk, if you will. Why did we only privilege first-order physical health and environmental harms? The next point I want to make is this appeal to sound science. Um, science can and it should inform decisions. I used to be a biochemist. Um, I had my PhD in biochemistry. I actually did plant molecular biology for a while. Um, but decision-making, it's impossible to base it purely on sound science. That is a myth. And so I have up here a dose-response curve. Um, so you have a particular concentration of a chemical on the, or a, a transgenic crop or a control crop on the x-axis and a response on the y-axis. Our data is usually feeding a lot of something to animals. So you have this uncertainty about the data is usually up in high concentrations, but what you're really worried about is more the uh, sublethal, chronic, small effects, perhaps like gastrointestinal effects, um, increases in food allergenicity. I'm not saying that there is a um, proof of a cause, but there have been people who have um, implied a correlation. Correlation arguments are used on both sides of the debate. Um, there was a large animal health feeding um, study that has been touted as proving the safety of GM crops when really it was a correlation study of animal weight gain over time or um, uh, milk production over time. For some reason, that sounds science, but if you try to correlate the advent of GM crops with the increase in human food allergenicity or irritable bowel sy syndrome, it's not science. So uh, I challenge that, the hypocrisy um, sometimes in who, whose science is sound science and whose science isn't. Um, but it really brings up the point that safety is socially constructed. So we can get a dose-response curve, and we can get it if we have good data with some certainty. But where do you draw the line for what is safe? Where do you set the regulatory standard? That is a social concept. Um, risk analysis is extremely value-laden in the endpoints we choose, the interpretation of data, uh, what timescales we use, what geographic areas we use, the choice of the baseline. Is it pristine nature thousands of years ago, thousands and thousands of years ago, or is it the green revolution as our baseline? And then, of course, with uh, benefits and economics, you all know that um, non-use values are very hard to capture and that discount rates are a value choice as well. So uncertainty in regulatory policy kind of falls into two worldviews. Do we avoid um, false negatives or do we avoid false positives? And that could be called um, a precaution. Um, if you're committing false positives, you're assuming that there is effect, a health effect when there is none. 
Um, if you commit a type 2 statistical error, um, you're assuming no effect or a safety um, when there, in fact, could be one. Most of, most of the world, we have these overlapping curves, and we're trying to, to look at very small changes. So there's always uncertainty, and there's always risk, and we cannot prove safety. And it involves a question of values. And I think that's why the more explicit we are about our values and what's underlying our choices in a regulatory policy context, the better. We may not all agree, but I think we need to admit that some of these things are value choices and how we interpret the data and what we choose as a regulatory standard. And the public is savvy to this. They're not stupid. Um, I've had several conversations with the public. You shouldn't speak to the public. You should speak with them. Um, there's kind of a new notion, not so new actually, the National Academy of Sciences calls it the analytical deliberative process where people have local and indigenous, indigenous knowledge about systems um, and that we should not only tell them what the science is but ask them what they want of the science. Ask them what we can do to um, address their questions and their concerns. The public is not irrational. They base their views, just like experts do, on worldviews, on uh, what type of product it is, um, what their cultural background is, on trust. Demographics plays a big part in it. But it's not irrationality. It's a variety of perception factors that even the experts like Rob and I have our biases. So then the question is, is why do the te technological elites get to decide what society wants? Um, and why isn't there feedback from society to um, technology? And so we have this big problem, and Rob's been in the, in the middle of it, um, of what public perception studies tell us about what the public cares about. They want choice. They want mandatory systems. They want transparencies, opportunities for input, and how oversight systems have developed and operated. And it's a problem. Now we're entering the second generation of genetic engineering, and it's here. Um, and a lot of this um, is moving into areas that the public is even more uncomfortable with for a variety of reasons. Animals, um, the environmental release of insects, genetically modified insects. And in some cases, the products are starting to benefit consumers, like directly, like the um, non-browning apple. A lot of this is based on a new set of technologies called gene editing, um, which can result in either making a point mutation, um, making small changes in providing a template and modifying genes, or adding completely new genes. So there's kind of three categories that are under debate right now in an international and national regulatory context. What's been disappointing is, again, because some of these processes don't use plant pest sequences. They've fallen outside of USDA's authority. And again, if it's not a pesticidal protein, it would not be regulated by EPA either. And the FDA process is voluntary. Now, all crops we know of have gone through it, but it doesn't lend itself to much confidence. Furthermore, the FDA is pretty narrow in their safety studies in saying that the company has determined that this is the same as the conventional product. We have no further questions. The FDA does not make a determination. Furthermore, they don't really care that much about RNAi, which is a problem. Um, if you look at um, some of the newer methods use um, RNAi or inhibition, um, it's not a protein product, and so the FDA doesn't 
ask questions necessarily about the safety of RNAi, although it's been shown to have negative human health effects in gene therapy trials and can be transferred to food. So we're under continuing conflict. Um, and um, where decisions about gene edited and these newer crops are being done largely in private, um, no formal consultation with the public. Um, NGOs will continue to fight. Um, lawyers for companies will continue to figure out ways to avoid regulation um, and innovate around it. And in fact, gene editing has taken off in a large part because it's not captured by the regulatory system. So I'm going to conclude. I'm going to, I was going to talk a little bit about genetically engineered mosquitoes and gene drives, which is actually engineering populations in the wild. We have that capability now to drive genes through populations by releasing just a few individuals. But I'm going to talk more about where do we go from here. Um, paradigms for better governance are not the problem. In the policy literature, there are plenty of them. We really need to acknowledge that values are implicit in all types of assessment, that science is uncertain, there's never enough for sound science to make decisions, and that industry and government scientists are not the only ones who should have a voice. Um, we should have a science-informed and value-respected system, not a sound science um, and value-ignored system. Excuse me for that word, that was a little awkward. Um, but so I'm, I'm, what I'm calling for is future governance. We need to take middle ground approaches between only the process matters and we don't like genetic engineering process, or only the products matter and the direct impact, in, impacts. And we need to acknowledge, and there are some paradigms in the social science literature for doing this. Um, and one of the ones I like best is responsible research and innovation. This is my last um, quote. Um, responsible research and innovation is a transparent, interactive process by which societal actors and innovators become mutually responsive to each other with a view to the ethical acceptability, sustainability, and societal desirability of the innovation process and its marketable products. So we need to ask of the public what they want, what concerns they have. We need to get better at acknowledging the uncertainty and not making such absolute statements that this technology is going to feed the world or it's perfectly safe. But that is not true. So um, I will end with that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Uh, now over to you, uh, Rob, for five-minute response. Up to five-minute response. Right. I'll try to be brief. It's given me 10, so I, I've got plenty of time. So uh, this is usually the part where you kind of expect the gloves to come off, you know, and have to have to get in and and uh, and go after it. But yeah, I find myself agreeing uh, an awful lot with uh, with some of Jennifer's comments. And you know, I think it's been a, a really uh, good discussion. I think we've approached uh, you know maybe some different views to a, to a common core here. Here's a couple of things that we both said. Um, we both said that this technology is important that it has benefits to farmers, that it's been well-regulated, and, uh, you know, as I told you earlier, the, the safety of the technology has been demonstrated over, uh, over 20 years. A couple of the core points, and which I think we would agree on. So safety is absolutely the starting point. I'm a discoverer of the technology. I work in a company, but I'm a dad. I got three kids. I think very hard about the, uh, the science and, and what it's doing, and, and I also think about you know, the risks and, and how we manage the science and the technology. Uh, this is a system that I think is, is incredible. The U.S. has three regulatory agencies. 
that draw upon that expertise that, as Jennifer said, has been very flexible. As the technologies have evolved and, uh, and the sciences evolved, I think it's great that we've had that kind of flexibility and, uh, and capability. As I said, the, the U.S. system has, you know, if you have the extreme that I talked about earlier, no regulation and super agency, we've reached a nice compromise in the middle. Um, if you talk about something being purely science-based, or if you talk about the extreme of societal involvement, like the precautionary principle that's used in Europe, which basically halts a lot of progress and, and reduces you know, advancement, I think the U.S. system brings in both the science and the public input. I would disagree a little bit with Jennifer because I've been involved in the regulatory process with all three agencies for the last 30 years of my career. I see lots of public commentary periods. I see lots of workshops. I see lots of white papers. I see you know, scientific advisory panels and processes. I see a lot of involvement. Not to say that there couldn't be more involvement. There's always room for improvement. My, my view on this is we have a system that works, that's the, the standard around the world, and, um, and uh, sometimes that's a very good thing. There's always, you know, if you, if you view the world through the lens of risk, you're always going to see risk. If you view the world through the lens of benefit, you're always going to see benefit. The important is I think we've got a compromise that has established the safety. One more time, these products have been used on a quarter of the world's farmland for 20 years, and there's not been a single food or feed safety ever associated with them. In my mind, you know, there's theory and there's practice, and we've used both. We've used the science, we've used the regulatory system, and all of these agencies have post-monitoring programs that have studied the products and, and looked at the performance of the products. And um, you know, I think the, the safety record uh, speaks for, uh, for, for itself. The other thing I would agree with, with Jennifer is the importance of transparency, making the public you know, part of the dialogue. And, and that's key. And I said earlier, I, I confess, we did a lousy job of that as a company. But for the last three or four years, you know, we've been out there with uh, social media. We have websites. If you get a chance, uh, you know, I, I want to make sure everybody uh, grabs one of my, uh, my thumb drives and business cards because there's a lot of links to, uh, you know, to information and sources. Is the system perfect? Uh, absolutely not. Frankly, one of the things I hope for and the Office of Science and Technology published has called for a, um, a review, frankly, of the coordinated framework. I think after 20 years of established safety and, and the performance of these products, there's probably an opportunity to, to, to lessen some of the regulation in some of the areas so that it's more accessible to university scientists or, or small companies. I told you the challenge we face today. It takes us 13 years from the time we start a product to the time it reaches the marketplace and costs $150 million. That's a pretty high hurdle for a lot of startup companies and universities, and I think it's stifling innovation. A lot of the new technologies that Jennifer talked about, the gene editing approaches, the RNAi techniques, are even safer and more precise than the core GMO technology, and I think they warrant a hard look on, on ensuring that we don't overregulate. The key to all of this is balance, and we want to continually put the focus on safety, but we don't want to stifle innovation of powerful technologies that are going to be absolutely critical for the future. Thank you very much.
Well, again, Rob and I agree on a lot of points, but I, first of all, I, I think we need to ask what technologies are, are critical for the future. Um, and there's not a really good way in our society where we as taxpayers get to um, determine that and to maybe not vote on it, but at least have a voice in the process. And there are much better policymaking um, systems where we could design a way for uh, national public dialogues to feed in with interagency groups and with stakeholder committees and constantly review categories of products and change whether they're captured or not depending on emerging evidence. We don't really have an engaged um, process for that and these decisions really are made between the developer of the product and the regulatory agencies. So I think we disagree a little bit on that. The second thing in health effects, we haven't shown the safety of these crops. You can't really show the safety. There's no post-market monitoring. Um, teasing out the health effects after they're out there and the population has eaten them for two decades. We're not looking for the subtle um, sublethal chronic effects over time. There's correlation evidence that some there there might be some correlation between um, allergenicity, um, food allergens, and um, uh, bowel irritable bowel um, syndrome. And there's a mechanism that a biochemical mechanism for BT protein that is possible. I'm not saying it's cause and effect, but there's some. We're not looking hard enough for those sublethal, um, chronic, um, long-term exposures um, over time. And so I don't. First of all, you can't show safety. And second, we're not really looking once it gets out there into the marketplace. I think most um, toxicologists will tell you we don't even have good animal models for long-term feeding studies with, um, con you know, with the control and the transgenic crops side by side. We don't really have good endpoints. The study conclusions depends on the endpoints you look for, um, depends on the uh, process of the study. So I think there's still a lot of uncertainty that could be addressed. Um, and some of the questions that the advocates are raising are valid um, questions that we could really look into um, more. But I do agree with you from a gene editing. What's good about gene editing is it democratizes the technology a bit. And it allows for entry of smaller companies. Um, and and it, it's easier to edit genes than to develop a transgenic product. Um, the regulatory costs are actually much lower than $150 million. From my, what I read in the literature, it's about more like $5 million. It's still a lot. Um, but then the question is how much of those are direct regulatory costs versus product um, agronomic characteristics and um, molecular characteristics that a company would have to do anyway. So I, did, I question those figures a bit as well. But I do think there is a lot we agree on. Um, and I do think there are ways to um, move forward with this um, as we face the second um, the second wave of genetic engineering, which is bound to happen in broader ecological contexts, especially with gene drive technologies and animals. And what kind of world do we want to um, envision? What kind of way will we look for these indirect impacts? Um, and who gets to decide, I think, is the biggest question. Thank you very much. So we'll open it to Q&A now. Um, I will ask the speakers to remain seated. Um, and um, if you have a question, please raise your hand, and Mike will uh, get to you. Um, if you would please state your name and uh, who your paymaster is. Um, and 
please, please, please try to make your question inform a question uh, and as short as possible so that other people get to ask. Lady in front here. Uh, wait for the mic, please. Thank you. Uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Fraley, uh, we spoke on the phone so, some while ago. I'm Judith Hyman, and I'm, uh, I'm a retired diplomat who happens to be a personal friend of, um, of Mark von Montague and uh, the late uh, Jeff Schell. Sure. And I was present when you all got your prize at, uh, at, uh, at uh, Des Moines. So I'm, I'm very interested in it. I am a non-scientist, and the reason why I was asked to try and write a book on the subject... Forgive me, but could you ask the question? We really are pressed for time. Uh, my question to you is, one of the things that I noticed is with the success of the crops that Monsanto grows, uh, they tend to have enormous monocultures. And I think one of the things people at least believe about monocultures is that science comes back and bites you if you don't leave some little room for diversity. Mm -hmm. And uh, the amount of room that Monsanto leaves in the f seed that it gives its, its, its clients is very, very small. It's 5% or less, or less. And I understand, and I also have heard, perhaps I'm wrong, that a 20% would be a much safer way okay. of protecting. Thank what you. What do you think of that? Great, great question, and uh, uh, if I don't answer it completely, actually on the thumb drive, I've written articles about you know some of the the misperceptions that that are out there regarding uh, you know GMOs and agriculture, and on, on monocultures, there's here's a, a couple of different thoughts that I would share with you very briefly. So first of all, monocultures aren't unique to row crops or GMO crops. I just drove through the Central Valley of California last weekend, and you know saw wonderful monocultures of lettuce and cabbage, and all organic crops are grown in in monocultures in the Central Valley. It's simply a, a more efficient way of of, uh, of growing and and protecting the crops from weeds and bugs. When I plant my home garden, I plant rows of onions. I plant another garden for tomatoes just because it's easier to care for them. So monocultures are, are independent of the, uh, of the agronomic practice. That's the first thing. Second, let's talk about what monocultures are really. In the U.S., across the central you know, U.S., farmers every year are making the decision whether they plant corn or soybean or wheat. If they're farther north, they'll plant sugar beet or uh, they'll plant uh, other crops. If they're farther south, they'll plant peanuts or cotton. And they make that decision every year based on weather conditions, based on the, uh, the economics, and frankly, what food the world needs. Contrast that to if I'm a grape farmer in California, once I put those grapes in the ground, they're good for 100 years. Now, that's a real monoculture for a long time, not an annual decision to meet the world's production needs. I think that's enormously flexible. The last point that often gets misunderstood, and, and this is an important point, the things that Jennifer are, was concerned about originally with GMOs is that we were putting a new gene in a plant. I've talked about it, nature does that all the time. But that actually increases the genetic diversity of the crop by, by creating new characteristics. And then the, the part that we didn't have time to talk about is one of the other advances with crops has been the fact that we now can sequence every gene in the crop. We can use that information to create new combinations 
And the simple point is this. With the modern techniques that we're using to produce crops, they're far more genetically diverse than they ever have been because we're using more and more of the world's genes. So it, it's a common misperception, but it's exactly the opposite of what's happened with the technology. Thanks for the question. And, you know, Jeff Schell and Mark Van Montague uh, were, were dear colleagues and friends of mine. Yeah, sure. I'll just take a stab at that. Um, well, first of all, I'm not concerned about putting genes into crops. What I think many people were com concerned about is, is putting them into different contexts that not even through horizontal gene transfer would be likely to be generated and to overproducing the protein products or um, the genetically engineered um, protein product um, in large amounts, um, overproduction of it, and the control switch always being on, the promoter, what we call promoter. Um, but this idea that we need biotech to feed the world, I, I would just want to challenge that a little bit because I've seen some studies, I think it was the Millennial Institute, where if we were to reduce food waste by just 4%, from 34% to 30%, and we were to reduce our animal calories from 600 um, animal calories per day to 500, that we could actually decrease the lamb by 20% while reducing um, hunger down to 3% from 11% with without biotech. Yield gains actually in the period of biotech, it's been increasing, but it's been increasing at a slower rate than it has during the green revolution, largely because we don't have as much diversity in crop breeding anymore. So conventional breeding programs are losing money. A lot of the investment is now in biotech. University scientists are all moving towards biotech. And we don't have a diversity of the varieties anymore because there's not an investment in that anymore. And so I'm very concerned about diversity in monoculture and land use. Um, and I think it's questionable whether biotech crops have really um, made gains in yields in, in um, ways that are sustainable. Okay. Um, gentleman in front of you. Herb Rose, um, EP Dowd and Associates. Um, I just wonder about uh, the discussion of transparency and labeling, uh, I certainly am not one to believe that autism results from inoculations, but on the other hand, uh, there are a lot of people who wonder about the food that they eat, uh, and the, there being no requirement that packages of food products be labeled as containing uh, genetically modified uh, materials. Um, why shouldn't the producer of the food uh, be required to inform the public, educate the public, rather than the public having to wonder about what's in that package that they eat. And I'm sure that 99% of uh, the population would never do any research online or elsewhere to find out actually what that package contains. So uh, why is there resistance to informing the public as to what the uh, products that they uh, Thank you. buy contain. Can I, do you want? Either. Okay, I just want to say, you know, I, I think the question of food labeling is largely a question of justice as well. I mean, who, who should have the burden to pay for the label? Should it be the producer of the product that the people who don't want, or should it be the ones avoiding um, the product that people don't want? And I think there's arguments on both sides, but I agree with you that um, mandatory 
um, labeling would put the burden on the people producing the GMO, which seems to me more equitable um, than to put it on the on the industry that's trying to avoid it. But you know, I, I can see arguments on both sides. So I just wanted it's more of a justice issue to me of 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 who needs to tell the public. It should be the people producing the 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 um, product. Yeah, as I made in my uh, comments, I talked a little bit about the labeling, and it actually surprises a lot of people that, uh, you know, as a company, uh, we're very supportive of the, the voluntary labeling. So I think it really gets down to a, a cost-benefit. So, you know, all of the organic foods, by definition, are GMO-free, and all of the 20,000 products that are already, you know, you know, designated by the non-GMO you know, GMO project are, are there. So far, you know, consumers have lots of choice, and I think the question is, what do you gain, you know, going that next uh, next increment? And, you know, where that's been studied, the, uh, you know, and proposed to, you know, frankly, voters, uh, you know, for their opinion, most people don't feel it's worth the additional cost or the effort. You know, I think if we are going to label at the, at the, uh, at the, uh, the level of, uh, of a mandatory label, you know, our, our view would be let's let's do it at the national level so we don't create you know a 50-state patchwork. And you know, frankly, that that I think is the discussion that's going on in Congress right now. There's been bills that have been uh, you know developed for that. I, we're, we're frankly supportive of doing that. Uh, the trick is just to to do it right so that you don't introduce incredible confusion into the chain and uh, and uh, and actually don't accomplish anything. You know, I, I remember. You know, 25 years ago, when you know the food industry, you know, went through the phase where everything it labeled as cholesterol-free, even the stuff that never had cholesterol in it. You know, you could find a bottle of water and it was cholesterol-free, or you could find a banana. You can get to the point where, uh, you know, in the in the uh, in the effort to try to label everything, you create massive confusion, and we've seen that before. So I think you know, keeping to a to a science-based label that's informative and actually helps the consumer, that that would be you know you know, key, I think, to, to, to solving this, uh, you know, for, uh, for everybody. Um, gentleman in, in the center there. No, no, uh, in, in the back. I'm trying to get some geographical re representativity here. <laughs> Hi, my name is Eric, and I work for Americans for Prosperity. I was curious, you both talked about what it takes to change the regulatory framework to make the, it less cost prohibitive for new players to kind of enter this marketplace. What streamlining processes might you want to see so more um, diversity in the genetic engineer can get in there? And also what uh, effect that patents on individual genetics or genetic sequences would have on restricting new player access to this market? Great. Let me uh, let me take a take a shot on it. So, a, a couple of the the major opportunities for streamlining is you know some of these products have been used in different crops and and re-reviewed literally dozens of times uh, the, the the same you know genetic modification. There's probably an opportunity to consolidate those reviews and you know after you've reviewed you know the 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 gene product for 20 or 30 times you know the I, th I think we have enough data to, to consolidate that. Another major opportunity, frankly, that's global, as I mentioned, you know, the products are reviewed in the United States, but to ship, to, to grow corn and soybean because those products are shipped all around the world, you know, the regulatory process involves getting approvals from 70 countries outside the U.S. I think certainly there's opportunities where we could see countries cooperate and, and create regional approvals. And I think one of the real opportunities today is Africa is now on the verge of, of rethinking 
what had been some of its past opposition to GMOs, you know, largely, you know, driven by the, the excessive European influence there. And we're seeing countries move forward with uh, regulatory approvals and considering doing it as country groups so that each country doesn't have to go through a separate process. So those would be a, a couple of examples. And on the, the last part of your question on the, uh, on the intellectual property and, uh, and what happens, uh, we have a great case study. You know, the first biotech product that we launched was Roundup Ready Soybeans. Roundup Ready Soybeans patent expired two years ago. Uh, that technology is now in the public domain. Uh, there are a number of, uh, of seed companies that are developing it. And one of the things that, that we did uh, in working with the American Soybean Association was ensure that the regulatory standards for that product on a global basis have been maintained. And I think it's really a success story. And you know, you get a patent, you get a few years of exclusivity, you get the opportunity to create value and pay back for your investment, and then that technology becomes part of the public domain, and that's exactly what's happened. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment. I'm not sure that the regulatory costs are prohibitive, um, especially for larger companies, and now even for smaller companies with who are using gene editing because it might not be regulated at all by any federal agency, and some products haven't been regulated by any federal agency. I'll just say that again. Um, but, you know, I did a rough calculation, and it's about point. 1% of sales went to regulatory costs for transgenic crops. If you look at one company and you look at their sales versus their regulatory cost for a particular um, now, it depends on what you include in regulatory costs, of course, you know, as I said before. And so you can play around with the data to make that number bigger, or you can play around to make it smaller, depending on whether you consider what exactly is a regulatory um, cost. And as it, it's obviously not stalling the, the industry. I mean, the industry is growing, and now with gene editing, it's growing even faster. And so I'm not sure that the regulatory costs are prohibitive. In fact, it might be spurring innovation in the fact that people are starting to um, innovate around the regulations because these laws have been, um, in, in a sense, twisted in, in some ways to fit biotech products. So I, I question that. I don't, say it's, I don't say it's not a pain, and I don't say it doesn't cost anything, but I question whether it's prohibitive just based on the evidence out there right now. So, Gilbert um, Netherlands Embassy. Um, as a result of the GMM discussion in uh, Europe, um, European Union came up with a, a new concept called Responsible Research and Innovation. I think I saw the definition in Professor Kuzma's um, presentation. I wonder um, to what extent is Monsanto working with that and um, how does this um, come into effect in your business activities? Um, you know, it, it's ironic, you know, for many ways. We we're just talking, uh, Judith made the point that you know, Mark Van Montague and, and Jeff Shell were, were two scientists who really helped develop the uh, the whole uh, technology for uh, for uh, for developing uh, GMOs. They were European scientists. Jeff at the Max Planck Institute, uh, uh, Mark in uh, in uh, in Belgium. So Europe's had a long history in developing uh, the GMO technology from the beginning. And, um, you know, there was great progress being made, uh, you know, in Europe, uh, basically until it became very politicized. So uh, GMOs, uh, you know, were launched in the U.S. in 96 when the, uh, when the shipments of grain went to, uh, to Europe. Uh, you know, there were challenges that Europe had with their, uh, their regulatory system around, uh, you know, at the time around, uh, around uh, you know, contamination with, uh, you know, with some of the, the prions and, uh, and 
you know, basically the, the BSE, that was a, a major setback. But the, the key thing was basically the, the politics in France. Um, at a time when Sarkozy was, uh, was getting, going back for re-election, uh, he needed to involve the, the Green Party in the, uh, in the discussion. So the deal was this. Uh, the Green Party would become part of his coalition if he agreed to ban GMOs. Uh, he did that, and if you want to check on the, on the fact record, uh, you know, GMO, Sarkozy, Sarkozy you, you can see the, the trade-off was made. So it was a political uh, decision that basically stopped the, uh, the technology, but it's even more complicated than that. The, the issue in Europe is their farmers cannot plant GMO crops today, but a lot of people don't realize that every one of the GMO products that's grown in the Americas, in Europe, uh, in Brazil, in Argentina, gets shipped to Europe because Europe is not self-sufficient in producing the feed they need and the food they need for their, uh, their animals and their crops. So all the soybeans from South America, all the soybeans from U.S., all the corn products are GMOs. They've been improved by EFSA, the European Food Safety Authority, and they are used routinely in food production in Europe. And so it's, it's a complicated dynamic. Uh, and I'm not sure whether the, the new views on regulation have made it any simpler, to be frank. It, it's very complicated, and, and frankly, you know, I'd like to say I was optimistic on a, on a quick fix to the, to the European uh, uh, position, but I, I think it's very political and it's very complicated. Yeah, well, I don't disagree that there's a complex uh, set of factors as to why Europe is a bit more precautionary than the U.S., which precaution is not an anti-science view, by the way. We went through, you know, the type 1 and type 2 um, errors. It's, it's a worldview. It's not anti-science. Um, and so, um, but I really like what's coming out of Europe on the social science side, um, on responsible research and innovation. And there's also kind of under that rubric anticipatory governance, where in upstream technology de uh, development, in the research and development um, stage, you would engage with stakeholders and public representatives um, to ask questions of them to help you scope your projects to, um, to guide the technology development in directions that are more beneficial to society. And it would be a back and forth, uh, forth process. And the same could be done in the risk analysis process as well. It's called the analytical deliberative model um, that the National Academy of Sciences recommended in 1996. So um, there are ways and there are models out there to um, experiment with some more upstream anticipatory governance issues that could lead technology down paths that are more beneficial to society um, and, and, you know, so as not to um, discredit or ban all GM products. Some may be very much needed in the future, but as to guide them in those directions. And I think that's really important um, that we pay attention to those models and experiment with them. And, and it's not that costly. It's certainly not as much um, as a Supreme Court challenge on GMF alpha would be. So, um, you know, it's not that costly to engage in that way and experiment with some of these models. Thank you. So we are out of time now for Q&A from the audience, but I have promised the speakers to uh, give them a few minutes to sort of um, sum things up, generalize, um, and, and conclude that way. So why don't we start with you, Jennifer, and uh, if you want, take three or four minutes to just conclude. Thanks. 
Yeah, well, thanks again for having me here. And, and Rob and I agree on a, a lot of things. Um, but I think you did see two different perspectives on um, the role of science and values in a risk um, governance framework, in a uh, governance system framework, and the role of the citizens and stakeholders to have more of a voice and more engagement. But we're at a really historic inflection point in technology right now with genetic engineering. And the second and third generation is going to become more and more powerful, more widespread. We're going to be able to do some great things, but there are some things that we're going to do that will have unintended consequences, will have downstream um, different types of harms, whether they're social economic or whether they're direct um, health and environment. And we really need a change in the governance paradigm. Um, policy models are out there. The policy window has cracked. Um, they're reviewing the coordinated framework. Unfortunately, I heard it's going to be more of a clarifying of authorities than thinking about really a revolutionary system where we could make better decisions about technology in the future. And I would like to see um, more of these middle stream approach like anticipatory governance, responsible research and innovation, because I truly want you know, the, the beneficial technologies, the value-respected, science-informed um, decisions to be, to be made, um, because we, we will need some of these technologies in the future. The question is, is can we steer them in the direction we need? Because the first generation of GM crops, although it had some benefits um, under some conditions, really didn't live up to its promise um, that it had 20 to 30 years ago um, to feed the world and, and um, save the environment. Now, I, I credit Rob and, and other companies for making some small strides in that direction, but I think we could make even bigger strides in guiding technology if we had some more um, anticipatory governance kind of frameworks where we engage stakeholders in society more upstream. Thank you very much. Great. It's been, uh, been a very good discussion. I hope we, uh, we didn't uh, disappoint you with the, uh, the lack of, uh, of fireworks here. Um, <laughs> There are, you know, I think there's more agreement than disagreement. I think that's important, and it's that common ground that, that I'll come back to in a few minutes. Um, let, let, me, uh, let me try to pull it all together. Um, the world is, um, is growing rapidly. Uh, we're going to have 10 billion people with us in, uh, in 34 years. I'm going to turn 63 next week. That means I'll be 97 when 2050 happens. I'm in pretty good shape, but probably odds are I won't make it. Um, I've got th three kids I think about, I think about my grandkids, and I think about the decisions we make today to ensure that we have all of the tools and all the capabilities and we use all of the incredible advances that, that, that science is poised to deliver to agriculture and food production. And, you know, we've heard a lot about risk and, you know, what the balance point is. I, I think, frankly, one of the reasons this country has been so successful is we have, we have achieved the right balance where we don't stifle innovation at the same time we ensure safety. Uh, we have the most plentiful, we have the safest food supply in the world, and, uh, you know, in many ways we're the breadbasket to a big part of the, uh, of the world. Um, you know, I think if you're looking for a contrast between my position and Jennifer's, I think the discussion in Europe is a case in point. They've taken regulation to such an extreme position that in the 100 biotech products that have been proved in the U.S., there hasn't been a single one in zero. 
in, the, in, in, in Europe. That's pretty precautionary. But more important than that, not only has it stifled the, uh, the innovation on the first generation of GMO products, but right now in Europe, uh, it doesn't look very optimistic that they'll approve gene editing technology. There, uh, you know, some other technologies using microorganisms are being delayed. I think we're seeing, uh, you know, basically a delay of innovation that will go on for, for generations, and that's a huge consequence to, uh, to give to our, to our kids. You know, um, is this science absolutely perfect? No. Uh, if we banned GMOs tomorrow, what would happen? I can give it to you real simple. Uh, we'd have to find another 40 or 50 million acres of crops to plant. We'd have to use a lot more pesticides because one of the benefits of this technology has been, uh, has been pesticide reduction. And I think we would introduce higher food costs. And I frank think for a technology that uh, has been proven for, for 20 years, that would be, uh, would be pretty, uh, pretty uh, excessive. And, you know, I, I, I wrestle a lot with the questions of, of safety uh, and, uh, and the ethics, and I think there's both sides to the ethics story. We can become so elitist in our views of, of how we think things should be regulated that we stifle not only innovation in this country, but we stifle it, frankly, uh, around the world. You know, for, for folks who aren't as well off as we are, where the benefits of this technology, you know, can be uh, extremely important and, uh, and uh, profound, and I, I would hate to see us get to, get to, uh, to that point. You know, um, I think risk is, is always an interesting question. You know, as a scientist, if, if you told me, you know, what are the odds of a little green spaceship coming down and landing on the desk, was it absolutely zero? I'd probably have to say, well, it's still possible, and, you know, that leaves the door open on a, on a decision. But I think balance is key here, and, uh, and that's what the, the U.S. system has provided. You know, we can innovate, we can develop products, they're safe products, and everybody around the world benefits. When I think about, you know, people ask me the question, what keeps me awake at night? I don't lose any sleep about whether the advances that we're making, the phenomenal advances in plant breeding and biotech, GMOs, gene editing, microbes, data science, using satellite images, computing, you know, capability on the farm uh, is going to transform agriculture around the world. We have the capability to double the food supply. And Jennifer is absolutely right. We need to waste less, we need to produce more, and we, we need to eat better. But it's going to take all of that to achieve a doubling of the world's food production, and I think we need to keep all of our option open. I think the way I would kind of paraphrase it at the end, um, you know, is there risk in any decision, uh, any technology? Uh, technologies aren't good or bad, it's how we use them. We've elected to use these tools to help farmers grow more crops, to improve their yields, to reduce pesticides, to, to, to reduce you know, the cost of their operations. The point I want you to think about is, frankly, and we're watching it play out in Europe today, there's also risks of not proceeding, of not moving forward into the future, of not using the tools and innovations that we've developed to, uh, to create a better world. You know, I, I, I think there's sometimes a romance, you know, that says, you know, we'd like to farm, you know, and, and produce food, you know, the way my grandpa did when I visited his farm or my uncle. I grew up on a farm and I know, uh, I know how hard it was and I know how these tools have helped farmers uh, to improve better. You know, it always, you know, I mentioned, you know, the role of GMOs in medicine. It's quite an interesting contrast because I've never heard anybody say when they go to their doctor's office, I'd like to have a little bit of that 1950s medicine, you know, and a little bit more of that. I, I think we, you know, the, the, these are important tools across 
the, uh, the you know the healthcare, agriculture, and food industries. And you know, I, I ask for you one more time: help support the communication. We've done a lousy job of it. You can help, but let's make sure from a policy and from a regulatory perspective, we have balance and we're making the right decisions, you know, for my kids and for that next generation, you know, for the right reasons. That's what's so important. Thank you. Thank you, Rob.